go. All right, Isaiah 1 through 5. So Isaiah begins with an introduction of the vision of the son of Amos. Uh, this is Isaiah, the son of Amos, A-M-O-Z, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. To get my Bible up. Um, okay, so let's see. Concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he is actually an early enough prophet. He's, he's early in the, this is like, um, let me get there on this board here. Um, he's around, you know, 740 to 700 BC. That's his time frame. So uh, at the beginning of his ministry, and certainly during his life, both kingdoms are intact, right? Um, 722 BC is when the northern kingdom is wiped out. So he's, he's starting out, and both kingdoms are still intact. But he is in Judah, right? He's in the southern kingdom, and his prophecies and his direct, you know, his direct commands and prophecy towards kings are in the southern kingdom with the southern kings. Um, so again, I would say uh, it's written by Isaiah. Um, you, you know, the Talmud um, actually, I think at one point in the Talmud, it actually attributes um, the book of Isaiah to Hezekiah, the king. Um, I think there's probably something to the idea that Hezekiah may have kind of did the final thing where he just put it into a scroll and started you know, giving it to, to the priest to put it in the synagogues. But I think Isaiah wrote this, right? He, he's, he's the one putting this all together and writing most, I mean, certainly he's the one giving these prophecies. That's why it's called Isaiah. But I also think he, he, um, he's the author of the composition, okay? All right, so uh, let's see. Uh, the author clearly tells the reader where he is working and living and to what he is concerned. That's the blank there, concerned. He declares that the nation is sinful and describes the rebellion of the people. Then he declares that God has had enough and that God no longer is appeased by mere sacrifices and burnt offerings. Um, so we saw at the end of the former prophets in 2 Kings, we saw the uh, exile. We saw the history and it all came up to uh, the exile, the, the southern kingdom. We, I think we could adequately see in the narrative there that Josiah, who had some, was a great king, had some really good reforms, but there was a kind of feeling in that, uh, in the narrative that it was too late, right? Things had already gotten out of control, and regardless of what Josiah was doing, it was too late. God was going to punish the nation. And so that's kind of where Isaiah's speaking here. Fits well with the canon. He's already saying, look, it's already too late. Of course, Josiah comes after this. Um, so he suggests that forgiveness is possible, but then discusses how Jerusalem has been corrupted. He also predicts that Zion will one day be redeemed. He says that God will reign over all nations and that they will come to Jerusalem to be taught in the last days. Uh, let's read this. Uh, could I have a volunteer read Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5? Any volunteers want to read that out loud? Alex, thank you. Uh, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amaz, beheld concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will be that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of God of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. From, for from Zion the law will go forth, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and, he, and will render the 
decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Awesome. Thank you. So, point of this first section of Isaiah is God saves, right? God saves, although it is too late for this present generation uh, of Israelites, there will be punishment. God will save in the future. That is uh, the point of this early section, okay? Um, and uh, you may have heard this discussion um, within Christendom of, of this concept of the millennium. You know, what, what is your view of the end of times? You know, are you a, a amillennialist or a postmillennialist or premillennialist? We're premillennialists here at this church. Uh, this is one of the primary passages I would go to, uh, certainly in the Old Testament, to support the idea that uh, there will be a time when the Messiah reigns on earth for an extended period of time uh, with uh, Israelites and other nations that come, and he's reigning there in Zion. This is a, um, a great passage to kind of speak to that. Um, and I actually posted an extra resource online, uh, an article by my favorite scholar who wrote about this, Isaiah 2, and it, its support of the concept of a uh, a future millennium. So I'd encourage you to look at that if that's something you're interested in. Okay, so uh, let's see. But, but so the God will save. It will happen in the last days. But the idolatry and sin must first be removed from the land. These things have to happen first. This is a primary theme of Jeremiah, which we'll see next week. Uh, but Isaiah is talking about it here as well. Um, this will happen in a day of reckoning. So this is a prediction of the exile. Again, we saw the exile happen in 2 Kings, but these are the latter prophets, a reflection back on what happened. Isaiah is saying this, this day of reckoning is coming. He's speaking about uh, this exile to come. Isaiah sees this day as not only something that will rid the land of idolatry, but a day that will bring about the worship of God and judgment by God in which only the righteous will be protected. So it is, it is supposed to be, it does not define how someone is determined to be righteous, okay? The, the point is about God's saving in the future, right? So it is a highlight of his grace. Uh, he says that Judah's women will be humbled, but states that a remnant in Jerusalem will one day remain. Uh, let's read that. Can I get a volunteer read chapter 4, verses 2 through 4? Mm-hmm. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, and all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth with the women of Zion, and he will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Um, so I want to bring this up because Isaiah is the prophet that speaks the most about this concept, but we're going to continue to see this again and again, this concept of the remnant. Who's the remnant? Well, Isaiah is saying, look, this is going to be destroyed. Everything, you, everything we got going here, gone, right? But there will be a remnant in the future that God will save. Well, who is the remnant? Well, at times, the remnant seems to be a remnant of these people, Israel and Judah, returning from exile at some point in the future back to the land. At other times, it seems to be a group that lives in the distant future in Zion. Okay, so um, it gets a little ambiguous at times which one he's speaking about. Uh, and so that's kind of the way of prophecy sometimes, right? It gets a little ambiguous when it starts speaking about the future. Is he speaking about one? Is he speaking about the other? I think that we can safely say there's some similarities in the message about both. Um, 
and you know, I think in uh, probably when we get to heaven, if we ask the question, who's the remnant, you know, God would say, well, yeah, both. I mean, right, it's all part of the same concept, right? The remnant, um, the future remnant that God will save. Okay, so that's just something hopefully is helpful as we continue to see this concept of the remnant come up. Okay, he then compares Israel to a vineyard who is not produced, that has not produced. He says that the people will go into exile and are condemned by God. They have committed much sin and will be punished. So when we read through this uh, Old Testament, Old Testament narrative, Old Testament prophecy, uh, you know, we need to be careful when we get into significance, right? I asked the question last week, you know, what is it? What does it mean? That's a meaning question, but we also should be asking, what does it mean in relation to the new covenant? I think all of these, all of these authors are looking forward to the new covenant, so we can ask that question, and that's still a meaning question, right? It's still part of the one meaning, but we need to ask that question before we go into significance. So, there's, I'm going to offer some potential significances, and then ask questions to get you guys kind of thinking about this, how to apply it to our lives. Um, but I think it's important to kind of think through that, right? Uh, like when we went through the Pentateuch, I didn't read uh, that commandment that said, um, do not eat a goat that's been bathed in this mother's milk and then say, hey, have you guys done that, right? I mean, that, that's it's different, right? That's a Mosaic covenant uh, prescription specifically. Uh, it's not necessarily the meaning of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch was speaking about something in the future, a covenant to come in the future, right? We're not under the Mosaic Covenant, we're under the New Covenant. Um, but we can, I think, read these things and look at things that are um, trans-historical or uh, that apply to all covenants, like things like, uh, you know, learning the character of God, right? We learn about the character of God through these, and then we can think about it and apply it to our lives. Um, so that's the kind of thing I'm doing here when I kind of stop down and give some possible significances for you to think about, okay? So one here is this section highlights the God who saves. Sacrifices are no longer enough and the people must be punished, but God has given a future hope to a remnant because of his grace. He, he saves some from the destruction they deserve. Again, there's no qualification of what makes someone righteous. It's just saying, look, in the future, I am going to save uh, this remnant. So I think this is something we know about God's character that we can kind of think about and reflect on here. So has God's grace saved you from the destruction you deserve? How does acknowledgement of the God who saves affect your life and level of obedience? Okay, I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to open it up. Anybody want to um, share, reflect on this? Give any thoughts? Thoughts on that question? Yeah. Any, any of this, yeah. Yeah, this is just to get you going, yeah. What exactly is the book of Emmanuel? Uh, that's next. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's next. Yes, yes, uh, 7 through 12. So we'll get there next, yep. Well, I guess all of us are, as I get older and older, I look back and I see things that I've done, and I go, well, that was, that was pretty bad. Uh, uh, and it's no longer like the, surface things that I'm doing I'm starting I you get to start seeing all the stuff that are deep down you know it's you know Jesus would tell you oh you if you thought this or if you yeah it, sermon on the mount yeah it's, you, you know uh, it's sort of riches thing oh it looks good on the outside but you start digging oh, you know I've never stolen anything and, yeah and you start going down and you go oh really yeah I should have you know in the uh, thinking bad in the murder category, I should have been long gone, hung twice, and, you know, buried because of bad things I've thought. Jesus says, that's, yep. that's that. I yep. go, oh. Yep. Um, and, uh, and so he's definitely saved me from that destruction. Yes. Because he said, I've taken that, you know, I've, I've taken that punishment from you. I confess it in my heart. I'm not going into a judge anywhere and going, well, I thought these thoughts, and, yeah. you know, and uh, I've confessed those, and 
throwing it away. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Anybody else? Yeah. I think uh, the words God who saves uh, puts me in a position of not being too haughty about myself mm. as far as it is God who saves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember that one hymn as well in my soul that Christ recognized our helpless estate. Mm. And I, I think that's important to think about. Yeah. yeah that's great. Yeah. I think it's kind of a hard concept in America today because we don't, even in church, don't teach that God's a holy and just God mm -hmm. and that he's this big, big loving Buddha up there or Buddha-looking person Yeah. and everybody's just going to get in because I think I can fall prey to that um, in that, you know, we're all sinners, but we don't think that way in America, though. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, God's loving and we're you know, either a victim or we're this or that or yeah. it's not our fault. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I think yeah. um, the more that I watch society, especially through children and my, now my grandchildren, I see it more so in myself that is this how God views us um, in explaining the concept of um, being ungrateful to a five-year-old, uh -huh. and his response was that, well, I'm ungrateful because you didn't let me go outside. Uh -huh. And thinking that, okay, it's a lot of my reaction and my sinful reaction um, is truly just rebellion of what I thought that God, you know, either promised me mm -hmm. or that things that I think he should just give me because I'm me. Mm. And the level of, that level of rebellion, it hits me smack in the face oftentimes when I am looking at those children who, whom I love and want to do almost any and everything for, mm. but I don't want them to grow up entitled sinful individuals yeah and it just it makes me reflect upon my own heart yeah and truly how wicked yeah. i am yeah that's good thank you for sharing that okay uh let's keep moving here isaiah 6 through 12 in the year of uzziah's death this is another king uzziah u-z-z-i-a-h in the year of Uzziah's death, around 740, Isaiah has a vision of God in heaven. He is sitting on a throne surrounded by seraphim, S-E-R-A-P-H-I-M. Isaiah is forgiven for his sins, for his sin, and offers to speak on behalf of the Lord. God tells him that he will instruct and warn, but that the people will not listen. So this is the call of Isaiah, right? This is his formal call uh, as a prophet. Um, this is uh, actually a narrative description and a great example of how you cannot always apply narrative and think that that exact thing is going to happen to me, right? We, you know, uh, back to the Pentateuch, you know, uh, Balaam was spoken to by a donkey you know, spoken the words of God. We don't go to the zoo to try to hear from God, right? That's just because it happened in narrative at one point doesn't mean we should expect it to happen again. We should not all be expected to be called to ministry in a certain way because this is, Isaiah was called it to heaven in this way, right? Shouldn't expect that to happen. Um, okay, so God tells him that he will instruct and warn, uh, but that he will not listen. People will not listen. Uh, a remnant referred to as the Holy Seed will emerge from the destruction coming. Isaiah tells King Ahaz that although Aram, Ephraim, and Israel are coming up against Judah, that they shall not overtake it and to trust in God. Uh, so 2 Kings chapter 16 is the narrative that describes this, this war that's coming. Um, but Israel you know, says, um, sorry, Isaiah tells the king they're not going to win. You need to trust in God. Then Isaiah prophesies 
an extraordinary future sign that a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. I-M-M-A-N-U-E-L. And of course, Emmanuel means God with us. Uh, he also says that Assyria will come against Judah in condemning Ahaz, Ahaz's uh, refusal to believe. Isaiah prophesies about a future hope who will represent God with us. He has just mentioned the future remnant. And in describing this remnant, he is about to discuss a descendant of Jesse, who will judge the poor with righteousness and slay the wicked. Matthew sees this section of Isaiah fulfilled in Christ. Uh, we then see another son born, uh, Isaiah's son. So we have two sons born in this section, Emmanuel and then, Isaiah, and then uh, uh, Isaiah's son, Mahar Shahalal Hashbaz, which means uh, quick to the plunder, swift to the spoils. I actually thought this was one of the best fantasy football names I'd ever, for a team name. Uh, because, you know, that's a, it's a pretty uh, intense uh, description there, right? It means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Uh, and it's, um, this is supposed to be a sign, the name is supposed to be a sign of Assyria's uh, coming and conquering the northern kingdom. Okay. So God instructs Isaiah not to fear the Syrians, as Israelites and Assyrians, as the rest of the people will, but to lead the remnant in fearing God. Uh, they should look to the future to get through the current crisis. The author describes a future Davidic king who will be wise and able to achieve peace. Uh, he also gives this king divine names like Mighty God and says the kingdom will last forevermore. Isaiah gives a specific or gives a message against the northern kingdom those who have rejected the covenant and describes their arrogance. Uh, he says that Assyria will be used by God to destroy Israel and then Assyria themselves will be punished. So we've got prophecies here that are meant to encourage about the future. Uh, first few sections, we had that too, right? God saves in the midst of the destruction that is going to come, God will save in the future. These are similar prophecies. Uh, so he speaks of a remnant of Israel who will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. This remnant seems to be the same as the remnant of Judah. Israelites who have remained faithful and a holy seed. Uh, Isaiah says that a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Now, this is clearly a, a reference to the Davidic promise from 2 Samuel 7, because Jesse is David's father, right? So it will come from a spring from the stem of Jesse. That's clearly a reference to the line of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Uh, in describing the time of, of his judgment, he says that animals will dwell together. He says that in this time, God will restore a remnant from all nations. He refers to this as a resting place. Isaiah finishes this, the section or book of Emmanuel with a hymn of thanksgiving. So I want to, um, before I get to significance here, I want to talk about what I'm, and Hannah asked about this, but I want to talk about what, what I'm talking about here with the book of Emmanuel. Um, when I say a book, it's just a section, right? It's a section specifically of Isaiah's prophecy in this particular time, right? Section of prophecy used at the beginning of the Syro-Ephraite War, which is referenced in 2 Kings 16, uh, but it becomes part of Isaiah's final composition. So he uses it very crucially towards the beginning here uh, of his book, of his composition. Uh, so Ahaz's lack of faithfulness gives rise to the need for a new king called Prince of Peace 
who will be born with the weight of government on his shoulders. Some think there is an actual Emmanuel uh, at the time. I think we talked about this last week, you know, looking at the historical versus the theological. Uh, I mean, everyone in critical scholarship says, well, there was a, a boy uh, born then that they named Emmanuel. Okay, that might be true. Um, regardless, the prophecy in Isaiah's composition is clearly about a future king. So he is the Davidic king who will fulfill the promises of 2 Samuel 7. Again, that reference to the root of Jesse, clearly a reference to that. By the end of the book, Isaiah's end of the book of Emmanuel, Isaiah's concluded that there is no current response that will save Judah. It is the king that is fully equipped with God's spirit that the reader should hope in. Uh, Isaiah 11, uh, 1 and 2. So again, first section, God saves. He will save in the future. Um, he's the one who saves, right? This remnant in the future. There will be destruction now, but there will be um, salvation in the future. Now we have, again, salvation of the remnant in the future, but we have a more specific pointing towards this king from the line of, uh, the line of David, right? So it's narrowed a little bit. Same theme running through, but it's narrowed a little bit, specifically talking about this uh, king from the stem of Jesse. And again, Matthew sees this, the book of Emmanuel fulfilled uh, in Jesus, and you see that in Matthew uh, chapter 1. So to get into the significance here, um, the book of Emmanuel encourages the reader to look forward to the future rule of the Davidic king as a way to sustain in the present. So again, he's, he's giving this book of Emmanuel, uh, Isaiah has prophesied this, and he's, he's doing this and giving this out and passing this around. It's clearly a different section of the literature, if you just look at a literary analysis. But he's using this as a way to um, give some hope to the people of some point in the future, even though there's destruction coming. So we should also look to the return of the Davidic king in order to sustain us in the present. I think that's certainly something we can take from this. So for discussion, have you ever thought about the return of Christ? Because that's the same prophecy, that's the, the same person being prophesied there is the one we're expecting to return. Um, how does thinking about his return affect the way that you live now, even in the midst of maybe destruction in your life? Um, how should we look forward and why should we look forward to his return? Any thoughts there? Return of Christ. I find that the older I get, the more I think about this. Mm -hmm. um, I think about it you know, almost every day that I, I look at the sky. Mm. And it's only because of just being in the word. And you know, as you were saying, with seeing current state of the world um, and just realizing prophecy is being fulfilled, that things are only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. um, how it affects my life, it gives me immense hope and it affects decisions. I, I try to help when Joe and I are trying to make decisions of just eternity mm. and what's really going to matter and um, eternal investments versus worldly investments and just balancing that. Mm. Yeah, good. Anybody else? Yeah, uh, I guess at this point in time, uh, I guess I will be at best going to him is, is my thoughts as opposed to him coming down here. Oh, sure. And, uh, you know, his return, it's like I always wonder, will I be behind him, you know, when he comes back, do I follow him down? Or uh -huh. I don't know the whole scenario. Yeah. I have a clear, uh, you know, sort of image yeah. of what's going on. Right. You know, uh, but, uh, but the return is just like, it's not a good thing uh, relative to the world. Right. Anybody else? Yeah. Well, I think, too, it's like, am I sharing the gospel? Am I hmm. in Christ and showing Christ to others, too? So, you know, I, I, these days I pray for this. I hmm. pray for Christ to come back. But, you know, then I think, too, that there's, there's many people around me that don't know him, and then that hmm. scares me, too. Hmm. 
Anybody else? Yeah. Um, thinking about the his return causes me to pray much more earnestly for people that I know yeah. seem to be lost. Yeah. But, uh, and causes me to text my grandchildren much more often. Mm. I don't know what they think about my text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's good. Anybody else? Yeah. I think uh, when you look at, like, Isaiah 2, mm-hmm. and then you look forward to Revelation 20, mm-hmm. uh, you look at those two passages, and you realize that the chamber of the nation is here to be put to rest. Yep. And it, it's hard for me to wrap my arms around that a little bit. It is, yeah. I don't know what perfection looks like. Yep. Yeah, to be very honest with you, but being a military guy close to my life, the uh, beating plowshares and swords is really a good thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. Okay, good. Anybody else? Yeah? I was going to say it just brought to mind um, on a personal level, First uh, John 3, 2 through 3, um, where it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself, just as he is. Hmm. Cool. That's great. Anybody else? First John 3? Yeah. Okay, uh, let's keep moving on. Isaiah 13 through 19. Isaiah gives a prophecy about the nation of Babylon. He says that God will fight against it and destroy its pride. He will tear them away from the earth. In the meantime, God will show compassion on Israel. uh, And once again, settle them in the land, allowing them to taunt the king of Babylon. This group will include strangers who will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. They will seek refuge in Zion. Uh, Judgment is also to come to Assyria, along with uh, Philistia and uh, Moab as well. Isaiah proceeds to give a lengthy prophecy about the destruction of Moab, discussing the arrogance and pride of the nation and how their downfall will occur. Uh, He also gives a prophecy about Damascus, He says that the city is about to be removed, that it has forgotten the God of your salvation. A similar message is also given to Cush, given about Cush and Egypt. God will incite Egyptians against each other and also because of their pride. Uh, He even says that the Lord will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. So there's still a word of salvation and blessing for all of these nations. Moab is 16.5, Damascus 17.7. These are just the references of when these are happening in the text here. Cush is 18.9, Egypt there 19.18-25. And then uh, he finishes here with Tyre uh, 23.17, starting in 17 there. Um, So he says that Egypt and Assyria will join Israel in blessings from God. God's chastisement of nations is seen heavily in other prophetic books as well. Okay, uh, Isaiah 20 through 27. When Assyria's captain comes to Ashdod to capture it, God has Isaiah go naked and barefoot for three years. God says that this is to symbolize how Assyria will defeat and embarrass Egypt and Cush. Um, I'm always struck. It doesn't give us the reaction of Isaiah here, I don't think, but it's like, you know, then we see Jonah. We'll see Jonah, if you, like he's resisting just going to Nineveh. And 
He's making him go around naked for three years. I mean, like if you're Isaiah, you're like, can't we illustrate this in a different way? <laughs> anyway, um, but we don't have any record of that, him, him questioning God at all here. So uh, God says that this is to symbolize how Assyria will defeat and embarrass Cush and Egypt and Cush. Uh, the author then gives an oracle about Babylon saying it will fall and its images will shatter. He gives brief oracles about Edom and Arabia. Then he speaks about the Valley of Vision, in which he gives an oracle about those who have attacked Israel and Jerusalem in their downtimes. Uh, he then predicts the fall of Tyre, another nation that is to be punished for exalting themselves. Uh, he also says that after some time, Tyre will trade and dedicate their trade earnings to the Lord. Okay, uh, then here starting in chapter 24, uh, taking an apocalyptic tone, the author notes, or the author discusses the judgment on the earth. He says that class divisions will go away and that the earth will be laid to waste. A curse devours the earth because the people have broke the everlasting covenant. Uh, this is interesting here. Um, because if it's everlasting, how could the people break it? Right? It's certainly an interesting uh, question. Scholars differ on what this is. I think it's clearly the Mosaic Covenant that we're talking about here. Um, that's the one that they have broken, right? Um, and I think by everlasting, it's um, simply referring to uh, the intention of it, right? It's, and I think it, there's, there's something to the idea that the Mosaic Covenant, although um, Hebrews 8.13 says that it has been made obsolete by the New Covenant, there's something to the effect that um, it is ultimately fulfilled, everything in Scripture, including the Mosaic Covenant, and these, you know, instructions about not eating a goat bathed in his mother's milk, right? All of these things are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Um, and he says that, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, so, and, you know, that's right, he said that right after he said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. So, um, so anyway, I think that's the best way to understand this idea that, that he says they broke the everlasting covenant. Um, okay, so he says that those living in it are guilty and condemned. Uh, he says that, he says to glorify the Lord, but that destruction and a pit awaits the inhabitants of the earth. He says that the Lord will punish the earth like prisoners. Then he exalts God with praise, saying that he has been a defense for the helpless and needy. He then says that the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. and will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. He says that people will say that this is the Lord, uh, quote, for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The author is intent in showing that the same God who created the world will recreate a new one where a remnant will be brought into eternity. Um, Let's read, I have the reference there to Revelation 21, which is the, you know, the eternal kingdom. Let's read chapter 25 here in Isaiah. Could I get a volunteer to read 25, 6 through 8? Just those three verses. Okay. Awesome, thank you. So that got very similar imagery at the end of Revelation about the eternal kingdom. 
Um, so I think this is uh, appropriately, rec we appropriately recognize this as a prophecy about um, the eternal kingdom. So he then gives a song about God's protection. Says that, quote, when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. He compares the nation and their crying out to God to a pregnant woman who writhes in pain. He then describes the deliverance of the nation, saying that God will one day make Israel fill the whole world with its fruit. Uh, after an exile has purified Israel, a remnant from all other nations like Assyria and Egypt will come to worship God. This is chapter 27 there, verses 6 through 13 there. Okay, Isaiah 28 through 31. Uh, the author makes a prediction about the captivity of Israel. Uh, he says that, uh, uh, says the, this is ordained by God, this captivity of Israel calls Assyria God's agent there in 28.2. Um, so author makes a prediction about the captivity of Israel, saying that the people have become prideful and drunkards. Cue my dad joke here. It doesn't say drinkards. It says drunkards. Um, their leader it never fails. You just, you just chalk it up. I'm always going to say it. All right. Uh, their leaders no longer clearly lead in the way of the Lord. A remnant is again presented. Isaiah uses this prediction of the captivity of Israel to warn Judah, saying that God's wisdom and counsel are great. Um, Assyria will actually attack Judah too, but God will save them this time. He will not save the northern kingdom, but he will save Judah this time from Assyria. Uh, he again warns Jerusalem, saying that God is accusing some of deceit. The remnant is described as the afflicted who, quote, will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And the true children of Abraham and Jacob. Isaiah then warns Judah to associate with God, not Egypt. He describes sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord and refuse to hear about the Holy One of Israel. So here the, the pressing condemnation seems to be about them not listening, right? They're not listening to the instruction of the Lord. They're not listening to him, the prophet. He describes the graciousness of God saying that he, quote, waits on high to have compassion on you. The remnant will find their rest in Zion. He says that when God comes, he will come in anger and consuming fire. His voice will be heard and Assyria will be terrified. Isaiah again warns against seeking help from Egypt and not from God. It's like you're not, not only are you not listening to God, you're listening to somebody else seeking help from them. He appeals to the fact that the Egyptians are men and not God. It's there, uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 3, specifically. Uh, he encourages trust in the Lord, for he will protect Jerusalem. He speaks of a day when, quote, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols. Uh, they should cast these aside now, because they will surely do so later. Um, these are going to be proven worthless. You're going to cast them aside. You should be casting them aside now. Okay, so we've got to, again, hearing the prophecy versus, you know, seeking the help of Egyptians. The significance here, possible significance for us, is Egyptians, much like people in our own life, are men and not God. And God is the one to be trusted regardless of the circumstance. Uh, so for discussion, are there areas of your life that you are seeking the counsel of men and not God. Why do we sometimes look to others before we look to God? Any thoughts there? Listening to the words of God? Listening to his scriptures, looking for guidance from his scriptures? Anybody got any thoughts here? 
Yeah. Interesting. Good. Thanks. Anybody else? Just as clarification, when you're yeah. saying that you're seeking counsel of men and not God, that's meaning men in replacement, in place of God, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, clearly one of the things from the text here is Isaiah is saying you, you should be listening to God, but the implication is you should also be listening to me, right? I'm a man who's speaking on behalf of God, right? So. Well, Yeah. So yeah. Marking godly man as an example to follow. Yep. Absolutely. So. Yep. And yeah. I think going along with what you're both saying too is sometimes I want to, I'll go to someone I know who tell me what I want to hear. Mm. You know, and so if I go here, it's not always what I want to hear. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes it's good if we can seek counsel in, in either way. You know, that we hear, but we know men of God, people in our lives that we, but also know that would speak truthfully to our lives. It's, mm. People give up counsel real easy. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can tell you how to do. Yeah. Just... Yeah. We all like to get involved in other people's lives yeah. to a certain extent. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. good. All right, we only got a few minutes here. Let's finish up uh, Isaiah 32 through 35. Isaiah continues to look forward to the time of the remnant, this time discussing the reign of the coming king. In this time, the spirit is poured out upon us from on high. It will be time, a time of justice. He continues his theme of a new society whose future is based on this leader mentioned here and in the book of Emmanuel. Um, 32.18, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and at quiet resting places. So Isaiah then moves to the judgment of God, again mentioning the destroyer of Israel, this is Assyria, and its own destruction. So again, he's a... He's a prophet in the southern kingdom, but he keeps prophesying about, because of that time that's about to happen, he's prophesying about uh, what's happening in the northern kingdom. Um, he describes God as the one who fills Zion with justice and righteousness. Uh, so after he does away with the enemy, he restores Zion. That's the point here. Uh, he says that sinners will tremble and that only those who walk righteously can live with God, the consuming fire. He gives the picture of the Lord ruling in Jerusalem and that all residents will be forgiven their iniquity. Again, prophecy about the future kingdom here. Uh, the author states that God's wrath will come against the nations 
He, quote, has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. After describing this destruction, he again returns to the future of Zion. Again, destruction, then restoration. Um, 35, 4 there says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So after describing this destruction, he again returns to the future of Zion, saying that during this time of God's vengeance, he will save you. The remnant will come to, to the Lord by the way of holiness, the highway of holiness. Those who walk on it to Zion are referred to as redeemed and the ransomed of the Lord. They will walk with everlasting joy. So a lot of big themes here. First 35 chapters about the future, the remnant, the destruction coming now, but the salvation coming in the future. We're going to see this more and more, and especially in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, next week, we're going to see um, more specifically, again, this answer to these two concurrent problems that are running through the text. Uh, we'll, we'll be presented with a, um, not a new character, similar character, but a new name for this character. So very important part of the canon. Uh, as I said, it's a, an important climax, this book. So uh, I think we're out of time. Yeah, we're out of time. Any questions, comments?